0: Hello and welcome to Under the Covers, the podcast from Westminster Libraries. I'm Anne Carroll. With me today is the Impact Guru, a person who is going to tackle all your fears about public speaking, be it a work presentation, a job interview, a wedding speech or a serious oration. She knows how to help because she herself has experienced glossophobia, that is, fear of speaking. And she's written a whole book about it. Exercising your oomph is an important part of what she does. And she says she might even make you feel two inches taller. She is Esther Stanhope. Hello, Esther.
1: Hi, Anne. Thank you so much for inviting me on. It's an
0: absolute pleasure. And now I'm five foot two. So I'm really looking forward to being five foot four by the end of this conversation.
1: You're lucky because I'm only five foot one. (laughs) (laughs) But I quite often play a five foot three or four.
0: (laughs) Well, it'd be nice to do it without heels. So let's see what happens. But shall we start with those books beside your
1: bed? What are they? There's one particular book that I I love it so much, I've read it twice. It's called The Chimp Paradox and it's written by Professor Steve Peters. He was a sports psychologist and I think he coached the British cycling team and uh, Victoria Pendleton actually said, this man is the most important part of my career. And what I love about this book, it's all about your mind. I love reading about psychology and mind management material, anything I can get my hands on to help me and my clients and, and people that I meet to be more confident. Confident. It's really about how your inner chimp reacts before your human brain kicks in. The animal within us is six times stronger than our kind of reasonable brain, which I find quite fascinating. But what I really loved about that book is what it really taught me was that you really can work on yourself and you can be a more positive person, really. And you can get rid of those mind monkeys, literally, (laughs) if you work on it another one next to my bed and it's got a pen attached to it and loads of post-it notes and it's from a friend of mine called Jill Whitty Collins and again it's you know it's related to me talking about confidence it's called Why Men Win at Work and Jill Whitty Collins wrote this book it's purple in the cover because International Women's Day colours and it's all about why there aren't so many women in the boardroom and given that I speak at a lot of women's conferences and gender conferences it's full of statistics so Jill she worked in the corporate world before she has done her homework when it comes to how many women the data and the studies that have taken place all over the world about why women hold themselves back is it the culture is it a female trait that we don't speak up in meetings is it to do with social safety in boardrooms and I love that book that's fantastic
0: also it's great that you are a reader. Because, as I understand, you had a bit of an unfortunate experience when you were about six
1: years old to do y- with yes. reading. I couldn't read aloud. I couldn't read aloud. That The words just merged and got blurred in front of me and I couldn't get the words out. Now, part of it could have been classic glossophobia, which is the fear of public speaking, where your prefrontal cortex, by the way, beginning mm. at the top of your brain, just shuts down and can't cope with anything. But I actually think it's a bit of that... Normally, particularly when you're under pressure, I had this awful experience where the teacher stood there and said, right, read that to the class, and I couldn't read. And she looked at me with her big eyes, it's, I've written about this in my book, and I just thought, I can't read. So I was labelled, oh, in the non-reading group. So I kind of thought, well, like, you know, I must be stupid or, you know, I'm behind. I don't want to offend anyone that might feel that they were in the low group at school or whatever. But when you label yourself the non-reading group, you kind of think that you're not really good enough. You feel like you're on the back foot. But I did English O-level, A-level, GCSEs. I was the first year to do that. But I always found it, I was much slower than everyone else at reading and I have to write notes. That's why I've got all these Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm post-it pens by my books. Well, so many people will
0: relate to having that kind of experience in school at a young age. But you and hopefully many, many other people have overcome it. As you say, you did English. You also found a place in quite a public arena, didn't you? Because you were in a pop video.
1: Yes, I was in a pop video, but it wasn't really me as the star. It was me in the background chewing bubble gum. <laughs> so I went to school with Neil Kinnock's daughter, Rachel Kinnock, because Neil Kinnock at the time was the leader of the Labour Party. We got invited to go on Tracy Ormond's video today dance in the background. I think I was 10 years old. That was probably the day where I thought, gosh, I wish I could be like that. I wish I had the confidence to be like Tracy Orman. I just thought she's charismatic. You know, she's an example of somebody who walks in and lights the room up. Going back to that performance,
0: shall we say? Yes. You actually went on to be in your own band, didn't you? Which I think has a wonderful name.
1: It's so embarrassing because at the time, you know, I wasn't really very confident. I played alto saxophone and I joined this band at Sixth Form College and it was called The Great Pagoda Dream Factory. It's fabulous. (laughs) It was um, named after the pagoda of Kew Gardens in West London because that's where a lot of the band lived. And I got to play at the Marquee in Leicester Square and venues all over London. And I was so embarrassed. I look at the pictures of myself. There's actually a picture in my book of me, age 18, posing with my saxophone, looking really attractive and young. And I look so confident. And I know at the time I didn't feel very confident. And yet, from the outside, I look like this young, confident musician rocking it. But I was never really that confident on stage. And in fact, I avoided any form of stage or, or public speaking until I started my business. Mm-hmm. But there was something at uni, wasn't there, when
0: you had oh, to do yes. some stand-up?
1: Yes, So at uni, I did communication, drama, theatre, but I nearly always ended up being the director, organising it, I wrote scripts. I would be the person putting it all together, not necessarily the performer. However, there was one course at Middlesex Uni, which was the stand-up comedy course. The finale of the stand-up comedy course was actually downstairs at the King's Head in Crouch End. We actually had to do stand-up comedy. All I can remember, Anne, is that... I didn't really sleep properly for more than three months or more. I went to the toilet very frequently for three months. I felt sick and I lost a stone in weight. Oh, my.
0: You suffered (laughs) for your art.
1: Yeah,
0: I I was just so nervous. You are just Um, the best qualified person to be doing this job, aren't you?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Because you just know. You know what it's like. It's absolutely true that you can overcome it. I am living proof that you can overcome it. But I did pursue my dreams of working in the media and i managed to get a job before i worked at the bbc i got a job as an entertainment reporter but all i actually had to do was get quotes from celebrities and i didn't have to even record myself i mean occasionally my voice would might be accidentally on tape saying why (laughs) so anyone who was famous in 1996 1997, I interviewed them. So that was, and I got this job, I started as work experience and ended up being my first proper paid job in in the media. So I actually managed to interview people like George Clooney, Madonna, Sharon Stone, Danny DeVito, Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Spice Girls, Samuel L. Jackson. I did the rounds. Any favourites? Speaking of people that are very petite, I've got to say I was pretty blown away by Danny DeVito. It was the premiere of the original Matilda film. Mm. And it was in um, Leicester Square. And I remember a whole bunch of us turned up. We were waiting for the cast to come. And so everyone's like chatting and talking and getting a bit bored, getting a bit bored. And then Danny DeVito suddenly walks in and the whole place lit up. He owned that room and he is about four foot. He's (laughs) tiny. He manages to give you... 30 seconds or 45 seconds of really good eye contact, one-to-one attention, smiling. He is so comfortable in his own skin. Now, that is something to learn from, isn't it? Mm. It doesn't really matter how short you are, what you look like, where you're from. If you can be comfortable in your own skin and be generous and give people attention, that is the secret sauce. You
0: went on to be a senior producer at the BBC and you worked with so many people.
1: You launched Vanessa Feltz' programme, didn't you? You, yes. you worked with the Strictly people. I did launch Vanessa's uh, first radio show there when she first came in. You know, people were like, Vanessa Feltz? Hmm, interesting choice. And as you know, she is the queen of radio. I mean, we just clicked, we got on really, really well. And when she first came in, I just realised she's so quick. She's so sparky. She's quite terrifying to some people. (laughs) Mm. No, I can imagine that. I mean, she's brain the
0: size of a planet as well, isn't she?
1: Yeah, she's super bright. We launched her show. I had the pleasure, really, of, of working with various different people, lots of different guests coming in. But also I got to work... My dream job, which was coming up with the new ideas for the entertainment department. So for a year at the BBC, I worked with the Strictly Come Dancing team. Next door was the Dragon's Den team, you know, and Graham Norton used to come in and talk about new ideas. We were the team to come up with the new ideas. That was my dream job. But you know what I had to do for that job? Pitching. I found that really tough. Because when you're pitching ideas, and every Monday it was like the new pitch, and then you'd work on an idea and then you'd have to pitch it and then re-pitch it. It's actually really hard because you're quite often rejected. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It was a job full of rejection on a weekly basis. But what I learnt there was how to pitch. What was the recipe for a good pitch? And that's what I'm helping clients with now um, today in my new, my new role running my business. But I had so much experience there with being the person doing the pitch, creating the pitch, thinking about the audience. I found it really, really tough. But I did create one new programme at the time. It was for BBC Four. And it was called Never Mind the Full Stops. And this is totally ironic because it was all about... Grammar and punctuation, which I'm terrible at. It was presented by Julian Fellows, the writer oh. of Downton Abbey. And at the time he was writing Downton Abbey. Nobody had heard of Downton Abbey. And, and he, he kept going up going, I'm just writing another, I'm writing another scene, excuse me. So I'm just going to finish this scene while I'm waiting. <laughs> I do remember, though, I was heavily pregnant at the time and he kept asking me questions. How are you feeling? What stage are you at now? You're in your second trimester. you asking me about my pregnancy. When I was watching Downton Abbey, I remember thinking, you know, because there was one, there was a couple of times when there was a pregnant. I remember thinking, was he asking me because he was writing a scene? Didn't somebody lose a baby or something? Oh, yeah, it could have been make, Cora, the, yeah, Cora. Yeah, Cora, when she slips in the bath. Yeah. I was thinking, oh my goodness, maybe he got some... Of Intel. (laughs) Mm, You should get some royalties from that, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I knew at the time. I wish I knew. Um, But you've
0: been immortalised there. But you did leave this dream job, you know, to follow another dream, I guess, your own business.
1: I remember an agent coming in and he said, look, Esther, I've got this author. He's a bit dull. Could you give him a personality? (laughs) And I remember thinking, yes, I can And the agent said, I know that you're really good, Esther, at giving people a personality live on air, but I'm not joking this time. I would pay you to take a day off and properly work with this guy because he really needs help. So what I did was I actually then, for the first time, decided, what is the formula? What is it that makes people interesting? What is it that makes people good? What is charisma? What is it that gives you the good voice? So I asked my boss, let me have a day off. I booked the work experience crew <laughs> to come down with their cameras. And I spent a day with this guy, Mr. Dahl will call him. I got him doing all these exercises and I got him to stand up with your head going towards the ceiling, chin down, smile, breathe, do a warm up, wear your heart on your sleeve. You know, all of these different elements. And by the end of the day, this guy was charismatic. The agent was gobsmacked. And he said, what have you done with this guy? How did you do that? And that day, I remember thinking, I love this. I want to do this. At that moment, I thought, I'm going to just, I'm going to do that. That's what I'm going to do. And I had no idea what would happen (laughs) from that point on. I had no idea how to run a business. I had no idea even what to call it. I didn't realise that really you ought to have a book. You need a whole package. You need to get your whole business running as an expert As a speaker... As, as somebody that can coach management teams Help people with their thought leadership Help people to be more visible I I didn't really know any of that stuff So I got myself a business coach And now that's what I do And so I did write the book mm-hmm. And now I am an author, award winning Goodbye glossophobia, banish your fear of public speaking But most of the time I'm speaking I speak at corporate events I speak at away days I speak all over the world And I'm not afraid anymore And it was going so brilliantly
0: and you've got all these skills but then you had a heart attack at an incredibly young age
1: yes gosh that's so funny there's me saying and we all lived happily ever after and of course life doesn't work like that unfortunately my own father died of a heart attack when I was very young he was a fit man he used to run he used to play rugby it was a Genetic, you know, we've got heart disease in our family. Mm -hmm. And so, age 45 in 2017, I suffered a mild heart attack. And I had no idea that it was a heart attack at the time, because when women get heart attacks, quite often it's quite different to when a man will get a heart attack. It will present itself in a slightly different way. So, for example, it was really started with a bit of a couldn't quite catch my breath. And Mm -hmm. I probably was overdoing it a bit I was working hard I was traveling a lot I rang up my GP and I said okay so I've been traveling and I can't quite catch my breath and I've had a slight numbness in my left arm I said well have you got heart disease in your family I said yeah my dad died of a heart attack when he was 40 and they said go straight to A&E now go to hospital now and sure enough when I went to the hospital they said you know that you have had a mild heart attack and and I I actually was in total denial didn't believe it Anyway, I had to have a stent put in. So I have a stent. Quite often when I say to people, oh, I have a stent, um, quite often they'll say, oh, my granddad's got one of those. <laughs> Great. <laughs> my grandma's got one of those. Like, So
0: mm-hmm.
1: what I've learned is I have got to look after myself. We all need to look after ourselves. You know, life's short, You know, all those cliches. But wow, that was a wake up call. I make sure that I can manage my stress levels. I mean, I think you know when you actually look at what causes a heart attack. Yes, of course, it runs in the family, but when you actually look at what can, what's most likely to um, bring on symptoms, it's all the you know drinking, smoking, etc. But actually, stress, stress, mm-hmm. and um, I think it really knocked me for six. I definitely lost my confidence a bit after that. I definitely had the wind taken out of my sails for a while. I like, I found it quite difficult to come to terms with it. I didn't like the fact that it was, what did it mean having a heart attack? Did it mean that I was unfit? Is it shortening my life? Am I ever going to live a full life again? You know, all those things go through your mind. And my kids at the time were only 7 and 11 at the time. And I felt a bit embarrassed. I thought, oh, no, people might think that I'm not fit. So anyway, I'm, I really am mindful now of being able to breathe and do yoga. I am watching my calories.
0: <laughs> and you speak for the British Heart Foundation as well, don't you?
1: Yeah, sometimes I, I do interviews and things for them. I've been to a few of their events. I was featured in one of the booklets and one of the campaigns called Bias and Biology. And it was really a raising awareness for women to get themselves checked out in terms of blood pressure and just getting yourself checked out and not disregarding those symptoms. Mm-hmm. Cholesterol, you know, blood pressure and cholesterol, they're, they're the big telltale signs. Well, I didn't check my blood pressure and cholesterol when I was 45. Yeah, I think it's worth, if you do find it difficult to catch your breath sometimes or going up a hill, going upstairs, it's a good idea just to get yourself checked out. The other thing about if you suffer from any form of heart disease in your family, it's really important if you are going to work out or try and get fit, is don't suddenly do exercise. Mm. (laughs) That's really bad for you. (laughs) Like suddenly run up the stairs suddenly climb a mountain, suddenly go for a CrossFit class that you're not used to. You know, it's all about slowly building up your heart rate and then getting to a a level and keeping it at a level that isn't killing yourself, literally. So that's what I do. I do, you know, fast walking and make sure that I don't overexert myself when I don't need to. So that was an incredible experience. But now
0: you're looking to the future. What's happening with you?
1: The future is... I'm already starting my second book. I know I don't stop, but I am doing it mindfully. So I'm really thrilled about that. So watch this space. But I would love to offer you, if you are interested in learning how to be more visible, how to do more public speaking, to be more confident, please get in touch. I'd be really happy to link in with you. If you want to link in with me, my name's Esther Stanhope, the Impact Guru. If you Google me, I'm sure you can find me. If you send me a direct message, a DM, not a shoe, a direct message, or send me an email via the contact form on my website, estherstanhope.com, I would be thrilled to share my free audio book with you. It's full of great tips on how to speak in public and how to tell stories. I just want to spread the word. Get out there. Be more visible. You've got nothing to lose. Life is too short not to. (laughs) Thank you so much, Esther. That is fantastic. Thank you, Anne. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much.
0: And as we close, a reminder of the books Esther chose. They were The Chimp Paradox by Professor Steve Peters and Why Men Win at Work by Jill Whitty-Collins. We also spoke about Esther's award-winning book, Goodbye Glossophobia. Esther has offered to provide a free download of the audio version. You can connect with her on LinkedIn or go to her site, esterstanhope.com. And if you want to know more about our library services, you can go to westminster.gov.uk forward slash libraries. My thanks to the Impact Guru, Esther Stanhope, and to you for listening. Goodbye.